Have you noticed that the Word of God contains far more life-transforming insights than we could ever imagine? I hope as you walk with Christ, you are gaining a growing appreciation for the wonder that is the living Word of God. We saw an example of how the Word offers more than we would generally assume last weekend. Because last weekend, we looked at a verse that is frequently neglected this time of year. One that is rarely quoted during the Christmas season, even though it's directly linked to Jesus' incarnation. It was the verse where Paul reminded us that the coming of Christ was the direct and inevitable result of God's amazing grace. The verse we looked at last week, the forgotten verse of Christmas, told us why God did what he did at Christmas time. This weekend, I want to consider another verse that sadly is frequently overlooked this time of the year, even though like last week's verse, it ought to have a place center stage. Because apart from the attribute of God that is described in this verse, the incarnation would have never gotten off the ground. It would have been an impossible dream. This verse speaks to how God did what he did. And as we consider this verse, today I hope to accomplish two things. First of all, I hope to help you have a greater appreciation for the fingerprints of God that are all over human history. The unbelieving look and they don't see the fingerprints of God. But those whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit ought to see the fingerprints of God everywhere in human history. And the second thing I hope to accomplish is to equip you to resist an ancient nemesis, an enemy of all of our souls, one that repeatedly knocks at the door of our heart seeking entry, the enemy that torments us by day, causing us to long for the sleep of night, but then that same enemy disturbs our sleep at night so that we long for the activities of the day. It's an enemy intent upon robbing us of our peace and joy, and I'll identify it once we have considered the antidote to it. Now let's look at our verse. Like last week's verse, it was written by the Apostle Paul. Also, like last week's verse, it was directed to Jesus' followers in the first century city of Corinth. It's found in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, and the seventh verse. And here's what Paul wrote. We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Today I want to focus in on the wisdom of Christmas. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, empower me to preach and teach your truth. By your Spirit, enable us to grasp it and apply it. And we pray these things for the honor of Christ among men, for the welfare of his church, for the advance of his mission in a broken world. And as always, we pray them in Jesus' great name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word this morning, may the Lord be with you. When you view human history through the lenses of faith, 
Once God has opened the eyes of your understanding, you quickly learn that those who underestimate God are always proven wrong. It's a lesson that Satan and the forces of evil at work in this creation should have learned a long, long time ago, but they still haven't learned it. I say they should have learned it a long time ago because at the crucifixion of Christ, blinded by their sin and pride, they celebrated. They looked at the crucifixion of Christ as their final triumph and their triumphant hour. But just as their party was getting started, it abruptly ended. And their triumphant revelry gave way to a troubling revelation, a startling revelation. They hadn't defeated God. They had unwittingly done God's bidding. What they intended for evil proved to be God's airtight plan for good. And he, not they, would be the one doing the celebrating. And to make matters worse, they never saw it coming. God's plan had been hidden to their eyes. It was his secret, and they weren't in on it. And so evil fell prey to the wisdom of God, because evil always falls prey to the wisdom of God. Sometimes we have to wait a while before that all becomes obvious, but evil always falls prey to the wisdom of God. Now, as we focus on the wisdom of God today, let me give you a working definition. I like to do that so that we're all in the same room as we think about our topic. God's wisdom is his power to know what is best, choose what is best, and orchestrate what is best. And I'm going to invite you to read that with me and emphasize the underlined words. God's wisdom is his power to know what is best, choose what is best, and orchestrate what is best. It is his unique capacity to translate goodness into action in the best way possible. To pursue perfect goals for perfect reasons with perfect plans and perfect precision and perfect power. Do you sense a theme there? And God's wisdom is an attribute that is unique to him. Yes, he offers to share some of his wisdom with us, James chapter 1, if we simply ask him. But only God is naturally wise, entirely wise, eternally wise, invariably wise, and perfectly wise. And that explains why that tree in the Garden of Eden was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of wisdom. It wasn't called the tree of wisdom because Adam and Eve, if they disobeyed God and ate from it, were not going to become wise as God is wise. Far from it. They were simply going to acquire what the title of the tree implied. They were going to acquire some knowledge. And there's a big difference, again, between knowledge and wisdom. 
And what they didn't realize, what was hidden in the fine print, was they were going to acquire a new knowledge of good and evil in that for the first time in their life, they were going to know the absence of good and the presence of evil. You see, the devil is often in the details. It wasn't called the tree of knowledge because wisdom isn't simply knowing good and evil. Wisdom is knowing good from evil, knowing the difference between the two, and then pursuing the good in the best possible fashion. And again, only God can do that. Last week I said that the narrative of Scripture is in three parts. Scripture teaches about the creation of man, the fall of man, and the redemption or restoration of man. And when that narrative is read through the lenses of faith, and when it's embraced with the heart of faith, it clearly establishes that the foolishness of evil is no match for the wisdom of God. That's why in another portion of his word, God goes on record as saying, when the men of this world plot their schemes and their ways of throwing me away and living without me, I simply laugh in derision. When men seek to do away with God, God's response is to laugh, not because he finds their rebellion humorous, it isn't, but because he finds it preposterous. Because the foolishness of evil is no match for the wisdom of God. And few narratives underscore the wisdom of God as effectively and persuasively as that of the virgin birth. It was an event planned by God in eternity past before the world was formed. And I would also add that despite the rather peaceful, tranquil, benevolent imagery that we associate with the arrival of Christ, the story of his arrival actually has strong militaristic overtones. Because the arrival of Christ is not only the story of God's sacrificial love reaching out to humanity with compelling humility and sacrifice, it is the story of God kicking butt and taking names. God denting the darkness. God destroying principalities and powers far more powerful than the armies of men. That's why when I ever hear, whenever I hear, excuse me, the song Silent Night, Holy Night, my mind, I always think Silent Night, Violent Night. Because while it was quiet in the natural realm, a lot was going on in the spiritual realm. And the incarnation and virgin birth not only reveal the heart of a benevolent savior, they reveal the mind of a brilliant strategist, one hard at work. A strategist who began planning before the world was formed. A strategist intent upon restoring us to our glory. That's in the verse. And when God says he wants to restore our glory, he simply means he wants us to come to the understanding of what we were intended to be when we were created in the image of the most perfect being in the universe. And not only come to understand it, but come to experience it. He wants us to be everything he had in mind when he created us. 
And the knowledge of God's wisdom at work helps us get there because it fills the discerning heart with hope and joy. And it reminds us that even when we can't possibly grasp what God is up to, God knows what he's doing. He selects the best possible ends and adopts the best possible means to accomplish that. And everything leading up to and surrounding the virgin birth affirms that fact from creation to curses. And I want to consider both today. Let's start with creation. Have you ever wondered why God made woman out of the side of man? After all, God created Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into him and made him a living soul. Why not do the same thing with Eve? Why go through that extra step? Was God just showing off? Was he bored? Did he say, let's try something different the second time around? Why did God do that? As you study God's word, you learn everything God does is for a precise reason. There's no fluff in scripture, it's all stuff. Why create her out of Adam? Well, the virgin birth reveals the answer. Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve were created with what we call conditional immortality, meaning they would have lived forever unless they sinned against God. Death would only come as the result of disobedience. When God said, if you eat of that tree, you will die, the implication certainly was, and if you don't, you will live forever. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would still be with us. Because when God creates, he doesn't create things with an expiration date. He doesn't plan obsolescence, so you have to come back four years later and buy the newest model. God creates permanence. So if our ancestors hadn't sinned, they'd still be alive today. But we know the rest of the story. They did sin. And when they did, death entered into their experience. And then death was passed from generation to generation to generation. That's why scripture says, it is now appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So while we don't know the details, because science has yet to catch up with God, while we don't know the details, we know that after the fall, there was something in that fruit that they ate that produced a biological change that not only resulted in their death, but in the death of their descendants. And how do I know that a biological change had to occur? Because if I lose my hand in an industrial accident, my children aren't born without hands because that event doesn't change my DNA and my genetic composition. Adam and Eve's dying could have been limited just to them, but it wasn't. It was passed on. So somehow in the eating of the fruit, a genetic change took place that resulted in death. And let me remind you, death is not natural, it is wholly unnatural. I said, God doesn't produce obsolescence. You know, every cell in your body will die and be replaced by new cells once every seven years, the biblical number of completion. Cells in your body are constantly dying and being replaced with brand new ones. 
And over the course of seven years, every cell in your body as you're sitting here today will be replenished. So why do we grow old? Every seven years, we should be good to go. Turn the odometer back to zero and start over again. Why do we grow old? Why do we die? It is not natural. It is wholly unnatural. It was never intended. But now it's passed from generation to generation. We don't know exactly where the death principle lies, but we know with whom it lies. We know who the carriers are. And sorry to tell you guys, it's us. Men carry and pass on the death principle. Why would I say that? Because Paul said, in Adam all die. He didn't say in Eve, even though she was the first to sin. No, he said in Adam all die. And for that reason, when God desired to provide a Savior, God prepared a body for Jesus that was derived from Adam, but yet it was free from the death principle. And how did he accomplish that? He took Eve out of Adam when? Before Adam sinned and before the death principle entered Adam's genetic composition. And that means that the possibility of conditional immortality survived, but not in Adam. It survived in Eve, unspoiled by the death principle. Now, she died because of her sin, and certainly all of her female descendants die. Why? Because they are the product of male seed. In Adam, all die. But the fact that Eve was created out of Adam before the death principle entered meant that if somebody could ever be born of a woman without corrupted male seed, they would inherit incorruptible immortal life, the immortal life originally given to Adam. And that explains precisely why Jesus was born of a virgin rather than as a product of Joseph's sperm and Joseph's seed. In his infinite wisdom, Jesus enabled Je or God enabled Jesus to be physically descended from Adam before the death principle entered Adam's genetic makeup. Had Jesus been physically descended from Adam through Joseph, he would have been mortal like us. He would have had his own inescapable appointment with death. And then he couldn't have offered his death as a substitute for yours and for mine. And that's why scripture refers to Jesus as the last or second Adam. Paul said, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus came in the form of the original man to undo the mess the original man made. It had to be that way, and it was God's wisdom at work, and it was at work back in the earliest chapters of creation. You see, God never does anything just to show off. Everything he does is an expression of his perfect wisdom. And let me just say something before I move on. When I was younger, those who are unbelieving used to scoff at the concept of woman being created out of the side of man. 
and they looked upon it as further proof that the Bible is contrary to science and naive and mythical. Now we know about DNA. Now we clone by doing what? Taking cells out of one, letting them reproduce in another, which is why I say, despite all of its boasts to the contrary, science is never ahead of God. Science lags so far behind God, it's not even in the game. And yet we worship science today more than we worship God. We insult his wisdom because we discover something and think we're bigger than he is. Who knew about cloning thousands of years before we did? Who knew about DNA thousands of years before we did? You think he might still know more than we do? And one other added, this is why you will not hear me use the term racism. In order for there to be one savior for the entire human race, that savior had to be a part of that human race and there could only be one human race. Because Eve was taken out of Adam there is only one human race. If she had been an independent creation like Adam, today there would be a multitude of races. Then one man couldn't have been the substitute for the entire race because there would have been so many races. But God saw to it that there was only one race and the Messiah came out of that race. That's why I don't use the term racism because there aren't a variety of races. And when you use those terms, you're reinforcing unbiblical concepts. I refer to ethnic bigotry. You see, there's only one race, which if you're doing your homework and put two and two together, here's the conclusion you come up with. Racism as we know it is incredibly stupid and unfounded in any reality whatsoever because no matter the color of your skin, there is only one race of humanity. <laughs> Behind bigotry is spiritual stupidity because behind every sin is spiritual stupidity. That's why we at ACAC are able to do what much of the world cannot do because the unity in Christ that bonds us together is greater than the silliness and stupidity that would drive us apart. The second place we see the genius of God in the backstories of Christmas involves an ancient curse God promised King David that the Messiah would one day sit on his throne. But God doesn't have any grandchildren. And David's descendants through his son Solomon proved to be very evil and unworthy. And eventually God got tired of their shtick. And one day he cursed one of them named Jeconiah. And he cursed all of his descendants and he said, none of your descendants will ever sit on the throne of Israel. Now you want to guess who is descended from Jeconiah? Joseph. So if Jesus had been Joseph's biological son, he could have never been the Messiah. Never. But you see, David had another son by the name of Nathan. He was righteous and his line wasn't cursed. And guess who was a descendant of David through Nathan? If you said Mary, you'd be right. So while Satan focused on Solomon's line, thinking he was defeating God's plan, 
God quietly stepped into history through Nathan's life. This is a football town. Satan fell for the play-action pass. God faked a handoff, and the defense fell for it. And then once they sucked up to the line of scrimmage, he sent Nathan's line on a post pattern and completed it for a touchdown. And like the Steelers, he went for two instead of one. <laughs> See, Jesus, or Jesus gained his legal identity through Joseph, but he avoided death and the curse through Mary, who not only provided the immortality, but the biological identity. So when Scripture says God prepared a body for Messiah, that's a lot of preparation, a lot of detail. And only God could have thought of that. See, the story of Christmas reminds us that the genius of God can't be thwarted by the evil of men. His promises cannot be prevented, including his promises about the second coming. And the day when the kingdoms of this world will go back to their rightful owner, they'll become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. It's often said the devil's in the details, that's why you read the fine print before you sign. But if you look at human history, God is in the details in far greater depth, and they demonstrate his wisdom. Earlier I referred to an ancient enemy that frequently knocks at the door of our souls, one that robs us of our sleep and of our days. The enemy I'm referring to is worry, the fear that something We'll not be able to handle something dreadful, something catastrophic is just around the corner awaiting us. It's a feeling every human being knows from time to time. And when that feeling comes, we find we're facing an ugly intruder who can paralyze us and rob us of our peace and joy. And I like to define worry as a mild case of atheism. And I do so because worry cannot remain where God's wisdom is remembered. The antidote for worry is the wisdom of God. And that's why <clears throat> we need to remember the narrative of Christmas. Because the virgin birth proves that against all odds, God can bring order out of our confusion, light out of our darkness, life out of death, good out of evil, and that for those who love him, he really is able to cause all things to work together towards his perfect agenda for our lives. God never guesses. He never throws something at the wall to see if it'll stick. He never takes a flyer. He never says, well, two out of three isn't bad. That'll put you in the Hall of Fame. And if you remember that, you can turn your moments of worry into moments of God-honoring faith. You can live in expectancy even if your path is difficult and your heart is broken and your circumstances are shrouded in mystery, as they often are. A person once asked the famed Christian apologist and writer G.K. Chesterton this question. How would you have answered it? He said, Dr. Chesterton, if you were marooned on a deserted island in the middle of the ocean and you could only have one book, what would it be? 
And he went on. Would it be the Bible? Would it be the collected works of Shakespeare? Now, how would you have answered? If you were marooned on an island in the middle of the ocean, and you could only have one book, how many of you would want the Bible? Let me see your hands. That's a safe answer in church. You know that. <laughs> yeah, way to take a risk. Wow. <laughs> how many would want the complete works of Shakespeare? Sports Illustrated. Yes, I see. There's an honest man. <laughs> you know how Chesterton answered? He said, neither. I'd want a manual on boat building. That's a wise answer. A manual on boat building. Duh. Then I can get home and read my own Bible. And just as his answer showed wisdom, God's activities, God's fingerprints in the world and human history demonstrate his wisdom. God doesn't always give us information on what's going on in our lives. He doesn't always give us explanations as to why things are happening in our lives. But he does give us examples of what he can do in our lives. Don't plead with God for explanations. Most of the time you wouldn't be able to handle them if he gave them. A lot of the time you jump in and try to help him and make a royal mess of things. We don't live by God's explanations. We live by God's promises and his examples. So let me say this in closing. It's been suggested if we had the power of God, there are many things we would change. Imagine if God gave you his power. Imagine what a royal mess you would make in a day. That's like putting a loaded 357 Magnum in the hands of a child. If we had the power of God, there are many things we'd change. But if we had the wisdom of God, we wouldn't change a thing. And he put his wisdom on display at Christmas time. And if he's big enough to handle the plan of redemption from clear back prior to Genesis, do you really think your current circumstances present a problem to him that he can't handle? No. No. That's why I call worry mild atheism. If you focus on the wisdom of God, you can hold on to your peace and joy when all hell seems to be breaking on the bow of your little ship. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you do more than give us empty moral platitudes to drive us nuts. Impossible assignments that we can never pull off. Where you guide, you provide. And when we step into a situation, Lord, you were planning your deliverance for us long before we saw it coming. And you'll be working out that plan long after we've moved on to the next thing. So, Lord, deliver us from looking inward in fear and help us to look upward in worship. Let worship replace worry and let wisdom feed our worship. And thank you for the wisdom of Christmas. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before Pastor Blaine comes and closes, let me just say, as we've been letting you know, this is not unusual. Every year, we come into the month of December needing three months' worth of giving in order to finish the year in the black and solidly ready for the year ahead. So we've been asking you to give extra to seek what the Lord would have you to do. But because we essentially need three months in one month, this past week, Karen and I tripled our monthly giving. Because I'll never call you to do what I wouldn't be willing to do myself. But now, having done it myself, I would encourage you to follow suit and to do your very best so that, again, we can finish strong and then launch into 2017 and the excited, expanded influence that awaits us there. Thank you, and God bless you.